Hi, and welcome back to the China Business Review podcast, bringing you analysis and commentary on the U.S.-China relationship from think tanks, government, and business. I'm Ian Hutchinson. Chinese investment in the United States has fallen from a peak of more than $45 billion in 2016 to only around $5 billion in 2018. At the same time, Chinese investment in construction has also fallen on a global scale. What's driving this, and is it likely to continue for the foreseeable future? We talk with Derek Scissors, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of the China Global Investment Tracker. Okay, so three sort of main topics I want to cover today. First, how and why China's investment in construction global trends have changed this year in the United States. Then maybe looking more globally at why those investment trends have changed. And then lastly, ways that U.S. businesses can maybe get involved or how they can interact with these trends here. So before we get into any specifics, can you lay out the difference between investment and construction as the two tend to get muddled together, especially in the press? Yeah, they certainly do. Um, We define investment as involving ownership. So you have to have a stake in whatever the, the activity is. Um, construction does not involve ownership, it's just you're building something. So a classic example, uh, let's say in a developing country, Chinese firms will typically have stakes in power plants, not always, but then they'll want to build a road to the power plant, they don't have any ownership of the road. So we'll look at that project and we'll have a road that is built by state construction engineering and a power plant that is built by Sino Hydro. The power plant built by Sino Hydro it has a 45% stake in, that's an investment. The road, there is no Chinese stake. That's construction. Okay, okay. Good to keep those, those separate. So Chinese investment in construction in the United States is definitely down in the past year or two. So how much of this do you think is attributable to current trade tensions and sort of the modern political moment, and how much of it is more structural? Well, there's never been a lot of Chinese construction in the United States in any case. Um, that's usually the Chinese doing things in other countries that they can't do for themselves. What they want to do in the United States is own assets. Um, Investment peaked in 2016. That was a kind of frenetic pace that was never going to be sustained. It fell in 2017, but still to to a reasonable level. Then it fell in 2018. Now it's falling again on our account in 2019. And the fall in 2018 got worse as the year went on. So the last year has been the weakest. Sorry, I forgot, lost the second half of your question. What, like, what's driving that then? Oh, well, a number of things are driving the trend. The first thing that happened is the Chinese cracked down on capital outflow. Uh, that accounted for the drop in 2017. Now, they basically attacked their own private firms who were smuggling money out of the country. Obvious example, there is H&A. Wanda is another one. Um, starting in 2018, we have a second wave that's due to the U.S. passing the CFIUS legislation. We still don't have implementing regulations for that. Chinese investors don't really understand it. That's an automatic deterrent for them coming here. Um, I support U.S. restrictions on Chinese investment, but outside of those restrictions, if you have investors who don't understand the situation, they're not going to invest even if you want them to. And then last, my hypothesis for this year is that the Chinese are rationing hard currency um, because they are worried about balance of payments problems which started in 2014, but threatened to get intensified if there's a U.S.-China trade conflict. Okay, so do you think that that sort of trend in, in falling investment from China in the U.S., is? do you expect that to continue? Do you think it will remain low? Well, it's so low right now, you'd expect, I mean, we can support a level higher than this. If we had a CFIUS implementing regulations and investors from all countries would learn over time what they mean, um, you should get some improvement. 
Uh, the problem that doesn't seem to be going away in the near term is on the Chinese side, which is they just don't want a lot of money leaving the country right now. And for that to change, to get a, so we, we get a mild bump in Chinese investment from these very low levels in the United States. To get a bigger bump, we need the Chinese to be more happy with their balance of payment situation, that they have enough hard currency for all their, their goals. I don't think that's going to happen anytime in the near future. And the Belt and Road right now is an empty shell. And I think Xi's priority will be to fill it out. So money to the U.S. is again going to be lacking. The major Chinese private investors have all been, you know, ripped apart in various ways. So we'll get a bump when we get CFIUS implementing regs and everybody understands the situation better. Um, but we're not going back. Forget 2016. That was exceptional. We're not going back to 2017's 25 billion. You know, we're at like five billion dollars a year now. We can get to 10 to 15. So I think you've probably sort of preempted the question. I imagine the answer will be no. But do you think that there would be an impact on the levels of Chinese investment, whether there is a change of administration or not in 2021? It seems like you're sort of implying there's already a floor. So. The change, yeah, the change of administration, we're, we're going to get an improvement when we finish the implementing regulations, regardless of whose administration, because clarity helps investors, even if they don't like the regs, to be clear, is useful to them. The only way a change in administration would really matter is if we got a durable settlement in the U.S.-China trade dispute. Uh, I know a lot of people think that the, another administration would do that. It's a lot harder than it sounds. Um, and so I don't know that the administration matters. It's do we have a settlement in U.S.-China that looks like it's going to stick so the Chinese aren't as worried about losing hard currency from exports to the U.S. and then they are more willing to give hard currency out to uh, investors overseas, including in the United States. Okay, so you also mentioned BRI, so that can be the pivot to sort of global investment in construction. So you you guys had just released a report pretty recently that noted the Chinese investment in construction took a nosedive in the first half of 2019 globally. Um, are the structural drivers behind that globally the same that they are that you were talking about in the United States, whereas you know, fear of capital outflows? And I'm assuming, obviously, CFIUS doesn't apply globally. Right. So now they are. Um, the original drop it was sharper in the U.S. because the Chinese were cracking down on private exporters of capital, private firms investing overseas. And the U.S. always has led in drawing private investment versus SOE investment. So 2017, Europe holds up because there's a giant SOE investment in a, in a pan-European firm. Then Europe also falls because they start working on regulations like we do. Um, globally now, to me, the main factor is, and you see this because it applies to both investment and construction, it applies in all countries, not every single country, but I mean, it, it's not just the U.S., the number one recipient, or Australia, or the EU. It's you know across developing and developed economies. Um, it, it, it's, it's the Chinese not having money. And this is a big shock for everyone because you still have people in their heads saying the Chinese have infinite money and whenever they say they're going to buy something, they always have the money. They don't. Um, they realized that to, in round one at the end of 2016 when they clamped down on capital outflow. Everyone sees that. And then it looks like third quarter of 2018, they decided they were, they were genuinely scared of losing access to the American market and they weren't giving anyone money anymore. So it is, it, that's the, you know, there are U.S. specific factors. That's not what's caused the most recent decline. Okay. So it seems like that's going to be the answer to my next question, which is at the last Belt and Road Forum, there was a lot of kind of ado, a lot of talk about increasing transparency, mm -hmm. making investments that better benefit host countries, you know, making all the noises that people want to hear. Um, do you think it's sincere or is it just, like you said, they're running out of money to put towards it? Or? Yeah, well, it could be both. Mm -hmm. um, the, the primary effect is they're running out of money. Um, I think 
what the and the Chinese have said this like everyone needs to participate. We want to meaning we want other people's money because we don't have any. Um, so I do think the Chinese want to improve their practices. They don't want situations like Venezuela, for example, where they pour money down a hole and they're never going to see it again. Um, I think Venezuela tells the lie or gives the lie to the idea that the Chinese are looking to induce dependence. They're not looking to lose billions of dollars. So I do think they want to improve their, the quality of their participation. But recipient countries are going to have to adjust to the fact that all that money they think they're going to get from the Chinese isn't going to materialize. So they're going to get better quality but considerably lower quantity. Okay. Um, so, drawing on that, you know, their invitation, they're, they're always talking about, you know, like, you know this is a, a chorus of many voices, it shouldn't just be China, you know, all this, but a lot of companies have been interested in, in operating in places where there are Belt and Road investments, but it's not necessarily clear how one would do that. So, do you see feasible places where, say, like foreign companies, American companies can get involved in places that Chinese investment is developing for for lack of a better term? Well, I mean, we've been, this this drop in construction and global investment, you know, not just in the developed con- economies, not just private firms, but this global drop is only like a year old. And so I don't want to, I don't want to say it's always going to be this way everywhere. That's, that's too strong a statement. But for, for American companies who are thinking China will put up the money and we'll bring the technology expertise. And that's been the model that's been in their heads. China may not have the money. So they need to adjust, not, you know, my first thing, my first uh, guidance to them would be to warn them, don't think the Chinese have the money for your project. They may not. If you're bringing capital to the table, the Chinese will suddenly be very interested. But that leads to the problem of why would you bring capital to the table for a product that you wouldn't go into by yourself? What are the Chinese bringing you that's protection against the quality of the project that you didn't have otherwise? And so I think, you know, American firms need to shift from, I will be a subcontractor and I will get Chinese money to what can I get from an actual partnership with the Chinese where I am taking some risk? Do they bring anything to the table here that's useful to me? Engineering expertise, relations with the local government and so on. Of course, there are also going to be drawbacks. The Chinese see these primarily as diplomatic tools for China. You're never supposed to embarrass them in those situations, especially Communist Party officials. But number one is stop thinking they always have the money. And in this new world, how do you, you know, what do you get from China since they don't necessarily always have the money? They have experience in countries that most American firms or many American firms don't have. Can you profit from that experience or is this country still a bad place for you to go? Okay. Um, so if you were a betting man, what do these investment trends that we've just been talking about us tell us about the, the future of Chinese investment? What, what do you think would be the most likely course of events? Well, I don't see how we get a sustained resolution of U.S.-China trade tensions, meaning, you know, we can get a deal. The president can announce some deal and say it's a big deal. I don't think it's going to last. The national security side is very suspicious of the Chinese. Uh, They've alienated the Europeans to some extent. Um, They certainly alienated the Japanese. So there's a it's going to be hard. There are a lot of people in this country and elsewhere dreaming of going back to 2016, 2015. I just don't think that's going to happen. That's my opinion. That's the key event for the Chinese having a lot of money. Um, if they feel like, all right, we're still going to be raising $380 billion, which is what they got from the goods and services trade surplus of the United States last year, you know, and, that, and we feel like that's protected, or it's 350, but that's fine, or it's 300, but we know the number we're getting, they're going to have more certainty in how much money they want to spend overseas in terms of hard currency. So the main event is, can we get stabilization in the U.S.-China trade relationship? 
If that happens, you're going to get more Chinese spending. And then you have to decide where they're going to spend it on. I think they're going to put it in Belt and Road before they put it in developed economies just because the Belt and Road is a personal objective to Xi Jinping. Of course, if, a, if an agro-tech enterprise shows up, they're going to buy it. I mean, if there's something that's really valuable to China, they'll buy it. But I think the money would go first um, to, to their global political objectives rather than their global commercial objectives. Um, and you see that partly because private firms, the major private investors have been wound up. So the major investors are now back to being state-owned and therefore responsible to, politi for, uh, to political objectives. Um, if you don't get resolution of trade, I, I just think we're, we're looking, we'll be looking back in a couple of years and say, what were we thinking that the Chinese were going to invest and take over the world? They just don't have the money without securing access to the U.S. I mean, if you, if you said, if somebody told, you know, came in and said, I'm from the future and China's trade surplus with the U.S. is going to drop in half and they're going to lose $190 billion of foreign currency as opposed to 2018, that's it. Right now, they have to fight off balance of payments crisis. Forget investing anywhere. Um, the Pakistanis are going to be starved for money. Everybody's be starved for money. So the number one situation is they have to take care of where is the hard currency going to come from. Um, and if you tell a happy story about that, you get a revitalization of Chinese spending, not to the levels of 2016, which were capital exit levels. They were not sustainable, but maybe to the levels of 2017, right? Um, and then we have a question of their priorities. If we don't get that stabilization of the U.S. relationship, we're going to get what we have now continuing. And people can argue with me like, oh, I don't think it's that bad. Well, you're, I think you're wrong, but whatever it is, it's not going to get better. And that, that bump that people are expecting, like there'll be a comeback, it's U.S.-China political tension, um, they need the money. Now, the one thing, the one wild card here is I, there are people uh, in China, outside of China, who will talk about how, well, the renminbi is being internationalized, so they'll use more renminbi. I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's correct. Um, we have not seen the Chinese put themselves in position to open the capital account so that the renminbi would become a global currency. Um, they're very worried about its value given the pressure on the balance of payments. Uh, its use has not increased since 2015 and it's tiny. So I'm assuming in all of this that they're using hard currency, mostly dollars. People who think that the renminbi could be used, that's another source of funding. And of course they have essentially infinite amounts of renminbi, and B, um, but I don't think that's realistic. So you, you, know, you either have to hope for a very long shot of truly uh, a true global increase in use of renminbi, not Hong Kong, but no, globally, or you have to hope for a stabilization in the U.S.-China trade relationship. Okay, well, something to look forward to. So Derek Scissors, thank you very much. Thank you. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council, and you can learn more about our work on our website, uschina.org. This podcast is also a companion to our digital magazine of the same name, China Business Review, and you can read more articles about the U.S.-China relationship, economics, and business on chinabusinessreview.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.